Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 52 and I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons. And as always, I'm joined by the man from Manhattan, Mr. Chad Owen. Good evening. Well, I'm coming to you from Manhattan. I am I am a Brooklynite through and through, Mike. I will set the record straight here. <laughs> okay. The, the record has been set. He's on tour. He's, he's, he's journeyed outside of the beautiful borough of Brooklyn across the river straight into Manhattan. Chad, how nice is it that we are kicking off a completely new, different show, something we haven't done before as a little... Uh, a little pause before we jump into our Simon Sinek series in the next show. We're yeah, doing our epic Simon Sinek series. Oh my gosh. Get ready, listeners. It's going to be huge. But before we get there, uh, I'm really excited about this show because it is completely different format to what we've done before and with a different theme, Chad. Why don't you set us up? What on earth are we going to do on the show today? We thought we'd come at you with a rapid fire sequence of clips around some cautionary tales that have come to light in the past year or so from the innovators in Silicon Valley and beyond. So we're going to, I think we have like 15 clips in today's show around Ooh. five or six different topics. And we're not uh, we're not going to be bashing any of these companies like they've already been raked over the coals by by the media. And what we're actually really going to try and focus on is what can we learn and how can we ensure that things are different so that maybe some of these things don't happen or happen as often right. or blow up in everyone's face as, as badly as some of these things did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a, a little context here is that really for the first time in recent memory, um, the last year or so tech has had a really tough ride. I mean, I did my first internet project in 1996 and for for the last 20, 25 years, the internet has just been on fire. It took a quick pause after the first bubble burst, but largely these tech titans, and we're talking about the, you know, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, they have been the darlings of the media. They've created these incredibly wealthy founders such as Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. It was really up until the last year they could do no wrong. And what's really fascinating is not just one, not just two, but several tech titans have hit rough waters in the last year. It has been a remarkable change, hasn't it, Chad, to to that, that last 10 or 20 years where tech could do no wrong. I mean, it's really interesting what's been going on the last year. Yeah, you can feel it in, in the air. There's entire political platforms here in the States that are talking about how to break up tech. You know, these are things that were, as you said, kind of unthinkable, even just a year ago, right? Yeah, it's, it's to me, um, is the, your, the words you use, cautionary tales. And, and I think, look, we've seen a lot of problems for, for Elon Musk, who looked untouchable. 
uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, and probably one of the biggest single disasters of the last year was Theranos and their founder, Elizabeth Holmes, who is in big trouble for how she led that company. I think, as you said, we're not going to try and bash them up some more because all these people have made mistakes and they're going to pay uh, the price, whatever that might be, for their respective misdoings. However, I think for us in our show, what we saw this as is an opportunity to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe the greatest mistake to be made would be not to ask what can we learn as entrepreneurs and innovators uh, from these mistakes and how can we do things better? Yeah. Yeah. And um, because the the news cycle is so crazy and fast, many of you may have forgotten uh, the big story that broke that first got Facebook into the really hot water right. that it's in now. But the Cambridge Analytica uh, breach is really, I think, oh, it's huge. probably the first mile. Well, yeah, and it, I think it's the first milestone that just opened the floodgates for all of these stories that we're going to be hearing about today. And uh, you, Mike, found a great clip uh, from the horse's mouth, someone who worked at Cambridge Analytica to uh, help explain just exactly what it was and how things went wrong. I do feel responsible for it. Um, and uh, it's something that I regret. He's an, an upper-class Etonian who expects people to follow him wherever he goes. Alexander Nix uh, is with me, and he starts with a sort of, like, razzle-dazzle. Uh, we, we work for the Pentagon, we work for, you know, MOD, MI6, da-da-da-da-da, we are brilliant, and... And whatnot, and I'm a posh British man, and you should trust me with all your money. What Kogan offered us was something that was way cheaper, way faster, and of a quality that nothing matched. They had uh, apps on Facebook that were given special permission to harvest data not from just the person who used the app or joined the app. But also, it would then go into their entire friend network and pull out all of the friends' data as well. Things like status updates, likes, in some cases, private messages. We would only need to, to, to you know, touch a couple hundred thousand people to expand into their entire social network, which would then scale us to you know, most pe- of America. And people had no idea that their data was being taken in this way. We don't work with Facebook data. We don't have Facebook data. Uh, We do use Facebook as a platform uh, to advertise, as do all brands and many, uh, most uh, agencies, or all agencies, I should say. From when I was there, that's just fundamentally not true because we spent a million dollars harvesting tens of millions of Facebook profiles. The company itself was founded on using Facebook data. We would know what kinds of messaging you would be susceptible to and where you're going to consume that. And then how many times do we need to touch you with that in order to change how you how you think about something? You know, it is a full-service propaganda machine. A full-service propaganda machine. Chad, this was crazy. I mean, they were literally not only getting people to use their uh, trivia personality apps at Cambridge Analytica, 
They were literally getting your profile, your friends' profiles, getting even private messages. And for me, uh, Chad, the, the worst thing of all of this was Facebook admitted that they actually knew about this for a long time before they were caught and they had warned them, but they did almost no enforcement uh, when they warned them years and years and years ago. This for me is, I mean, what Cambridge Analytica were up to was bad, but how Facebook just did not take it seriously until it became public speaks volumes to how they truly think about privacy and ethics. Yeah, and I think this the whole idea in the financial crisis that hit in 2008 2009 this idea of banks being too big to fail i think facebook had a bit of that yeah uh, mindset yeah. and i think just the nature of their business like their business and their users outgrew their capabilities and their operations they just didn't have the security and the tech team and the privacy team to be to be even aware of of these sorts of issues. And so in, in my mind, it was, it was a failure on the leadership's part to look around the next corner and then look around the next corner to, to borrow <laughs> yeah. some ideas from yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. in the previous episode. Hmm. Um, they did, they, they weren't thinking about second order consequences. They were just thinking, Oh, you know, sure. We'll give um, certain partners access to some data when they're running ads or when they're running these trivias and, and quizzes. They're not, doing the red team, blue team exercises where they're thinking of all of the worst case scenarios. Like, of course, someone that's profit driven is going to try and game the system. And that's exactly what happened. Cambridge Analytica, you know, exploited, you know, the, the, the vulnerabilities in Facebook's system. Yeah. And in the end, as always, they got caught. And this next clip, is going to outline just what exactly happened once people knew what they were up to. Five billion bucks. That is what Facebook could end up paying the Federal Trade Commission in what would be the largest fine ever by a U.S. regulator against a single tech company. In a report to investors yesterday, the social network revealed that they are setting aside billions of dollars in anticipation of those possible penalties. The agency opened its investigation into Facebook after the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke last March. The report found 87 million users had their data scraped, eventually leading to Zuckerberg's first appearance before Congress wearing a tie, publicly apologizing for the company's handling of the scandal. But despite all of this, just remember this thing, Facebook stock surged after posting strong first quarter earnings. And that is something to remember. Well, Facebook has two issues. They've got a public relations issue. They don't have much of a stock price issue at the moment. Joining us now, Scott Galloway, a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business and an expert on all things Facebook. To Ali's point, Scott, Facebook, lots of public outrage they face, but never anything that affects their bottom line. Do you think this is a is a do you think this is going to have a real impact, a real dent? Oh, Stephanie, not only do I not think it's not, not going to have a dent, but I think the FTC has unwittingly been sort of co-opted into being a co-conspirator in Facebook. And effectively, what you have is a fine that puts aside some of the uncertainty uh, at a price tag that Facebook can shrug off. Let's talk about numbers here. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's three billion. It's it's three to five billion. That's about two weeks of revenue, about seven weeks of cash flow. So if Facebook can say to the marketplace, we can continue to do this. We can continue to engage in this type of behavior. 
and it results in what is effectively a parking ticket, then the government is no longer sort of a countervailing force to private influence and private corruption. It's now sort of been co-opted into a co-conspirator. So not only does this not deter things, this probably enables them. Enabling, like a parking ticket. Oh my gosh, that is such a great analogy for that fine. It really is. Yeah, uh, I think I'd heard someone, maybe it was even Scott, say somewhere else that they need to add a zero or two to these fines for it to be a deterrent. I, yeah, and, and the, the, the interesting thing for me that we can learn from Facebook is that they have this, this kind of quandary, this, this sort of balance that they have to make, which is because they don't charge us to use the product, we fundamentally, as human beings, we become the product. And so you've got this sort of conflict of interest. On mm -hmm. one hand, they need to take care of us, but on the other hand, they need to exploit us. And, you know, we've seen how challenging this can be. We only need to look at MySpace and so forth. Monetizing social networks is actually way trickier than you may first think because this idea of, on one hand, protecting the rights of your users, but then exploiting them, this can be a very, very tricky balance. And I, and I think what we can learn from this is that at any point that you are not charging your customers to use your product, it creates a huge ethical dilemma down the track. And what was really interesting is that you might remember when we did the Travis Kalanick show, he often talked about, and Apple uh, CEO has also talked about, is the following idea that these companies talk about us not being the product. So Tim Cook, uh, Travis Kalanick, often talk about, we charge you, you get it, you buy it, and we don't need to exploit you for that. This is how people attack Facebook. But when we phrase this in a different way, it's how can we create value for our customers and earn a dividend, a yield, create a income stream for our business or our product that is not in conflict with the interests of those same customers. I think that's the big ethical uh, question that that Facebook presents. Yeah, the the lesson for me is kind of don't start a company like Facebook where the users aren't paying. It does, doesn't it? You almost you almost start to think, well, if if they're not prepared to pay for it, do they really want it? Yeah, and I have some very conflicted views on this, especially when it comes to the world of the arts. We're so trained for things to be free now that asking people to pay, especially again, when it comes to the arts, it's like, it's a very tricky thing. Um, for me, it's why I leave my Spotify running all the time because mm -hmm. I know that mm -hmm. Spotify is like paying a dollar and 80 cents for every, to the artists for every dollar that they're collecting in revenues. <laughs> um, because I want, you know, I want the artists <laughs> to get paid what's, what, what's due to them. But yeah, th this idea, the lesson for me is understand what the value is, as you're saying, and, and how or when or why the customers or, or, or what amount the customers mm. are willing to, to pay for it and, and make that contract open and transparent, yeah. which was how Facebook got in, into trouble because, you know, they hid, sh sure it was done legally, mm. but it was done behind these terms of service that are 
hundreds of pages long that no one reads and mm-hmm. privacy settings didn't exist. And those are the, those are the two lessons that I'm taking away. Yeah. There's a last thought here that I have, which is like, um, I can't remember from whom I learned this, but they, they once told me this, this idea that I really like, which is don't do anything in life that you wouldn't be comfortable being put on the front of a newspaper that your grandmother reads. <laughs> and, uh, I really like this idea. You might even say, don't do anything behind closed doors that you wouldn't want uh, your, your customers to understand or to know. And I think it's these simple questions of transparency and like, how would this look to the outside can be a way of you you know, refining your, your compass, your ethical compass. And I, I think that's a, it's kind of a neat way to think about, you know, the things you're doing, particularly as soon as everybody heard and saw what Facebook was doing with Cambridge Analytica, it became immediately a massive problem because it just wasn't good. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of, of things that you wouldn't do or things. Yeah. Speaking of situations that uh, you wouldn't want your grandmother to, to find out about, I think one of the most intriguing stories to, to come to light recently in, in large part due just to, I think the mystery still about what exactly went on is Elizabeth Holmes story and, and, and Theranos and what they were or weren't doing and how they were able to grow to to the heights of billions of dollars, um, only to come crashing back down. But here's uh, the first in a series of of some really great clips from the people that were following the story most closely about Theranos and the founder Elizabeth Holmes. The ABC News investigation involving the young woman, the self-made billionaire, and her company Theranos. She claimed to have developed a blood test that could save lives. But did she put lives at risk? Tonight, we have now obtained the deposition never seen before. And ABC's chief business correspondent, Rebecca Jarvis, reports. She's the Stanford dropout who became the youngest female self-made billionaire and had legions of believers. Elizabeth Holmes boasted her company Theranos could detect hundreds of diseases from just a drop or two of blood. We've made it possible to run comprehensive laboratory tests from a tiny sample. That pitch convincing everyone from Rupert Murdoch to the owner of the Patriots to American retirees to invest. Anything at all you want to say. But Holmes is now facing criminal charges and up to 20 years in prison. She's pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors say she knew Theranos couldn't deliver accurate and reliable results for all its blood tests, which experts say potentially put thousands of patients at risk. Okay, this is the Walgreens. Sherry Ackert took a Theranos test at her local Walgreens and mistakenly feared her breast cancer had returned. The nurse called me back and she said, I am so sorry, that's not good. There could be a tumor growing somewhere. I will never forget that day. A different test showed Sherry was healthy. Tonight in this deposition obtained by ABC News, never before seen questioning of Holmes under oath. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Pressed about those hundreds of tests she claimed her company could perform to detect diseases. And how many tests could it run at that time in 2010? Um, I I don't know exactly what the number was. It was probably um, tens of, of tests. So when you say tens of tests, you mean something less than 100? Yes. 
Did it concern you that a number of tests weren't working on Theranos' devices? <clears throat> I know that we made so many mistakes on this front, but we were, we were trying to take this forward. Hmm. Ay, 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 ay. I don't know. This Theranos thing, this was such a deception. There is a fantastic documentary on HBO that you can enjoy, which goes into great the detail. The Inventor, very good one. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, which you can get on moonshots.io. Yes, we made so many mistakes, but you know, the thing is when you hear what they're playing with, I mean, this is healthcare, people thinking they had cancer when they didn't, people who didn't have cancer, who may have had cancer that didn't know as a result. I mean, this is the line you cross when you, I mean, she's arguing we had vision, but I would argue, no, 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 that wasn't vision. You were just downright lying. And uh, to say that we made so many mistakes, I mean, does that qualify as the understatement of the year, Chad? Yeah, I I think the reason this story was so intriguing to me is Elizabeth Holmes, at least the way she's profiled in the in the book by John Kerry, Bad Blood, in, in this documentary, The Inventor by the amazing documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney, she, she's portrayed as kind of like the paragon entrepreneurship and inventors and it's like you you turn all the kind of normal people up to 11. And so it's not that I don't see too much evil or malice in what she did. It was just all of those characteristics that make a great entrepreneur and innovator were just, they were just over amplified. And, and, and she got herself into a situation, there were n- no checks and balances on, on that hyped up, you know, entrepreneurial uh, personality. Yeah. The, so I think, you know, the, the line that you drew first there is, is this line between vision and misleading people. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a big part of people who are doing ambitious future leading things. You know, some people do this really well. You, you would argue that, um, Elon Musk has, found it rather challenging to navigate this same line because he's always promising things of the future or even simple things like we're going to produce this many cars in a given period. And he's all, you know, of recent times, he's also been caught out where people are like, you know what? I'm not sure if I believe you anymore because I kind of heard this story, Elon. So this is a really important uh, topic. But these next few clips uh, go deeper into this whole Theranos scandal. And the the, the man that you're going to hear speaking is John Carreyou. He is a Wall Street Journal reporter and a great author. And he was the one who put the spotlight on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And he can take a a large part of the, I think, the praise Mm -hmm. for revealing just how misleading Theranos really was. So let's have a listen to John Cario talking about all the different people that were duped by Theranos. How were so many people and companies duped along the way? Well, what uh, Elizabeth was really adept at uh, it was winning the support of someone older, experienced, who had a great uh, reputation, and then uh, leveraging that association uh, to get her own credibility. And the first person she did that with was her Stanford engineering professor, Channing Robertson. Then a few years into the life of Theranos, she met Don Lucas, the, the venture capitalist who groomed Larry Ellison and helped him uh, 
bring uh, Oracle Corporation public in the mid-80s. Um, and then in 2011, she met George Shultz, the famous former Secretary of State, who crafted the Reagan administration's foreign policy and who many still credit with winning the Cold War. And uh, what many people don't know about George Shultz is that he's passionate about science. His house is right off the Stanford campus. And when he met Elizabeth, he was wowed with uh, her claims about what her technology could do and quickly agreed to join her board and then introduced her to his buddies at the Hoover Institution, which is a think tank housed on the Stanford campus. And, and that's how she came to meet the likes of Henry Kissinger and S Sam Nunn and Bill Frist, Bill mm -hmm. Perry, et cetera. And they, they soon joined the board, too. And was timing also a factor in all this? Because right around 2010, we see Facebook rising. We see Twitter being right. very popular. Um, investors were basically looking for the next unicorn startup. And, and there's Theranos. Right. And, um, you know, money was gushing into the valley because uh, in large part, we'd had the, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. And uh, the Federal Reserve had lowered interest rates. And so uh, traditional investments like bonds no, lo no longer returned good money, and so investors went looking for higher returns elsewhere. The so main, the Valley became the gold rush. The, the Valley became the gold rush, and um, uh, one of the companies uh, that, that seemed uh, so promising uh, was Theranos. And in uh, late 2013, early 2014, the company achieved a valuation of more than $9 billion, and Elizabeth Holmes had managed to keep half of the equity, so she was worth almost $5 billion. And this fulfilled this yearning there was for the first female tech founder who became a billionaire. There had been other women in the Valley who had achieved you know, fame um, and wealth. Sheryl Sandberg, who's the number mm -hmm. two at Facebook, Marissa Meyer. But mm -hmm. they hadn't created their own companies. Elizabeth Holmes was going to be the first tech founder who was a woman and who achieved great riches. Mm. I'm hearing two things in this. One's kind of like a good lesson out of the bad. And then something here at the end where we collectively as a society wanted something so bad. I know. That we, in a way, almost maybe we helped create it as well because we wanted, we wanted it, we wanted her to succeed so badly because we wanted oh, yeah. a female founder to become uh, a billionaire. But the, the first part that's actually, I think, a, a good lesson is this kind of stepping stone of reputation so that if we're, if we, if, if we're an innovator or an inventor with a, a legitimate idea uh, that does provide value to the customers to use those stepping stones of, uh, of reputation that, that works yes. so well in her favor. But when she was deceiving them, the lie just kind of passed right, between right. all of them because of, of their connection and reputation. Yes. So, I mean, the endorsement thing is a huge learning inside of this one. But the other thing that I thought was really powerful in that clip was the reference to the gold rush that was on at the time. People got so carried away. It, it was these other stocks were, were flying. There was a sense of don't, you know, fear of missing out. Um, and so that's why the timing of things like raising money and IPOs is just so important. And that's why we're seeing a flood of them at the moment because, you know, there's an appetite there. And, you know, people got really burnt on the Lyft IPO. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I think there's that. And, and you're, you're absolutely right to talk about it was a female-led company. She dropped out of Harvard she was actually promising something that like, how could you not want 
a universal blood test that's just a little prick on the finger rather than the the whole uh, tie my arm up and take a few gallons. I mean, every human on the planet would say, well, that is a damn good idea. So we we so desperately wanted all of this to be true and um, it just wasn't. And um, just to to go deep another level on this, we've now got uh, a little bit of thinking from John Carreyou again. And this time it's it's really about like the motivations or perhaps, you know, why, why tell the lie? Why mislead so many people? So let's have a listen to John Carreyou talking about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. So do you think she was intentionally trying to mislead investors or was she consumed by her own ambitions and thought she could make this happen? I mean, it's a, it's a mixture of both. Uh, this is not a, a Madoff long con. You know, Madoff essentially decided uh, in the late 80s that he was no longer really investing money and built a Ponzi scheme. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, when she dropped out of Stanford, had a vision and really set about creating a company and hiring people to make that vision happen. But along the way, encountered setbacks, as entrepreneurs do, and, and refused to um, admit the reality of those setbacks and continued to overpromise to investors. And it got to a point where the gap between her promises and what she said she had achieved technologically and what the reality of the technology was got so enormous that by the time they went live with the finger stick blood tests in Walgreens stores in the fall of 2013, it had become a massive fraud. So is there a possibility that um, that there could be criminal charges um, stemming from this? Because uh, the SEC, uh, of course, charged her with massive fraud. She agreed to pay a $500,000 fine. Are there criminal investigations going along uh, going on right now, though? Right. Um, there's a uh, an investigation uh, spearheaded by the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco that's been going on since December of 2015. So we're now two and a half years into it. And my sources tell me that that investigation is very active and very advanced, um, and it may well result in criminal indictments of Elizabeth Holmes and her ex-boyfriend, who was the number two of the company, Sonny Balwani. The the thing that sticks out to me here is, and, and this is this is a life lesson, but it's those little white lies or innocent lies, oh, or, yeah. or 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 lies by omission. They only grow larger over time. Isn't that true? Like you can just see if at the beginning when things weren't working out, there must have been this pivotal moment where she decided to lie. And then there was a second moment where she told a lie on the lie. And then after that, she was toast. And it reminds me of when you're a little kid and you're learning the rules of life, like just don't lie because it always ends up bad. I'm always, when I'm watching a movie with my son, I'm always like, see, if they hadn't told a lie then, then they'd be okay. But now they've told the lie on the lie. And, and, you know, how many times in our professional career, in our life growing up, just it never works out. You always get caught in the end. So just at the first moment where they, they, it's a hard conversation, you have to admit that you made a mistake just admit it. Better do it now because it never gets any easier, does it? No. It's it's easier said than done, though, because so many entrepreneurs face that moment that Elizabeth did. They're talking to the R&D team or the engineers, and they simply say, we can't do it. What, what, what we're promising or what you're 
asking us to do, we just can't do because we don't have enough money or time. The technology doesn't exist. We can't invent it. And, you know, the, the founders that have survived and gone on to create great companies, I'm sure that people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have faced these same moments, but instead of doubling down on that small deception that then grows, they, I hate to use this word, but they take that, that moment to then pivot. They, they take that roadblock and then do some subtle judo to, or taekwondo to kind of deflect the energy of that obstacle and then put it back into something where maybe they do have more traction on the R and D front or on the, the, on the customer market front. But, but in this case, it all gets so very real when she knowingly agreed to put the Theranos installations into Walmart. Uh, sorry, uh, what's that, Walgreens, mm-hmm. and to do this when she knew they didn't have it. Like, there, there's one thing about being in production before you go live and pushing people to overcome the unknown and the impossible, but there was a huge, I mean, she crossed the Rubicon when she said, hey, Walgreens, let's deploy this to real people, When she, when, and she knew it wasn't working, and that that was just one of the very many bad decisions. Oh, sure, sure. But where I would have liked to have been is like that first meeting in the moment where she was told that her vision wasn't achievable and then to kind of like see the look on her face and get inside of her head and understand what was going on. Because I'm sure that that moment happened and a different founder may have again gone in a different direction but she she didn't and we we all know how that story ends so the learning here i think for all of us is there 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 are i mean just a lie and a lie always ends up terribly but more importantly i, I really want to come back to the moment when they agreed to put the product live and out into the universe mm. that is a moment that we should all feel like okay this is such an enormously important moment and should not be underestimated. And if we're not ready, then we should just call out and say, no, we're going to delay because that, that until you get it right. Because when we face that moment, mm-hmm. you know, disappointing, not delivering to customers or putting their health at risk, those stakes are massive. And once you lose trust, it happens very quickly, very easily, and it is incredibly hard to earn back. So may as well take the short-term heat and delay and put it back until you really do have it. I mean, for me, that's the really strong lesson that lies uh, within Theranos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. W- one of the more fascinating parts of the documentary is they speak to former Theranos employees and the oppressive culture that was fostered there because they all, they knew that they were lying, but no one said that they were lying, but you know, everyone felt horrible because they were lying. It was just, um, it was certainly an unsustainable, an unsustainable business because the, the people there, you know, grew the ethical backbone, uh, that the leadership didn't. And we have a really interesting, uh, clip about a different company who's, you know, a, a a big movement of of employees, uh, you know, decided to speak out against some some practices. And I'm I'm talking about Google and the the walkouts 
to protest mis- misconduct and and inequity. And do you remember exactly how many people it was? It was it was thousands, almost ten percent of the global company. Yeah, so that would be about ten thousand people. Yeah. Uh, basically said, hey, the way women are treated in this company is not cool. And I I have to say, you know, putting aside the issue itself, I actually think culturally, whilst they were not treating women fairly, the fact that the company had the capacity for employees to stand up and to call this out to protest and that they've been able to create change from within, I think that part that part is a real positive here. So let's have a listen to this uh, PBS report on the Google walkout. Thousands of employees walked out of Google offices in more than 40 locations around the world today, protesting the company's handling of sexual misconduct claims. The New York Times reported last week that Google had paid millions of dollars to departing executives accused of sexual harassment and never made the allegations public. Among them, Android creator Andy Rubin, who received $90 million on his way out the door. Rubin denies forcing a female Google employee into a sexual act, despite the fact that an internal investigation found the claim credible. Employees in New York City held a rally after leaving their office and called for a broader cultural shift at the company. We demand structural change in the name of transparency, accountability, and equity. This is not really just for myself, it's for everyone here. We also know that we have the eyes of many companies looking at us, and we've always been a vanguard company. So if we don't lead the way, nobody else will. Katie Brenner co-wrote that original New York Times story that disclosed how Google handles sexual misconduct claims. She's been following the walkouts today, and she joins me now. Katie Brenner, thank you uh, for joining us once again. Was this the turnout that had been expected today? This turnout exceeded expectations by far. We'd have reported that we expected about 1,500 people. Other people thought it'd be a few thousand. At this point, we have, you know, unverified accounts, but clearly a lot of headcount going on of up to more than 10% of the company's overall 94,000 employees has walked out today. Of the people you've talked to, what's motivating them? Sure. I think they feel motivated by a few things. There's been a long simmering tension within Google about the way that, that women are treated. It's not just the idea that sexual harassment has gone unaddressed. It's also the fact that Google has refused to be transparent about whether or not men and women are paid equally. It's the idea that top leaders of the company, with, by having high-profile affairs, they were very obvious, they were known secrets, that they treated the, the, the women at the company like their personal dating pool. And what kind of message does that send? And then, of course, the strong that probably broke the camel's back was the report that Andy Rubin received $90 million, which is an extraordinary sum, after a credible claim of sexual assault. These things all together send a clear message, which is that men are more valued than women. And for a company as important as Google, as high profile, where the employees are as highly paid, they said that the time has, it's now the time to stop. I don't know how to respond to this other than just to say they're all right. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, as 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 I was listening to this, the 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 big um, sort of thing here is you can focus on being the best engineering company on the planet, but if you're not working on culture, you're going to have problems as well. I mean, that's the big thing. They they've always been so famous for their engineering, right? At Google, 
but quite obviously they didn't invest in culture and that seems the big call out here. Just having good code isn't going to make you a great business. Yeah. I Someone said it very simply in that you know, people are asking, well, how do we solve these problems of, of the pay gap and and you know no no equ- or you know no equity in in leadership or on boards and this this simplest answer is you have to hire the diversity and you have to make pay transparent and pay people the same it's 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 kind of as simple as that yeah and and the the another tool that i ran into when I've been thinking about culture, and I've been using this a lot, I just explain this because I think this is really helpful uh, when we think about like, well, okay, when we say we want good culture, that can feel a little bit uh, abstract. For me, like the best definition of culture is that culture is created through the unspoken messages people receive about what is valued and what is important. Mm-hmm. So it's the unspoken messages. Okay. Now, Everybody pays lip service to saying the right thing, but it's really the unspoken thing. So it's shifting around from what you say to what you do in a company. And there's like three key areas here. One is how people behave. And that can be things like how people do meetings, how they talk to each other in emails, how people interact. So there's the behavior. The next one is systems, like how you plan, what what gets allocated budget and what doesn't. And, and, the, the process of, of budgeting, how things are measured and all the structures and organizational stuff there. And the next thing, the, this one for me is the symbols. It's little things, the titles, the car parks, the promotions, how time is spent. So when we think about culture, I think a really practical way to take such a kind of emotional, sensitive, abstract thing is Culture is created through the unspoken messages people receive about what is valued. Mm. And we break that down into those behavior systems and symbols. And I uh, actually, you and I used this together uh, on a project with a client recently, and it was so powerful, wasn't it, Chad? Yeah. In, in some ways, the kind of more materialistic outputs from the workshop paled in comparison to the, the cultural aha as we started to, to pull together the insights around the behaviors, the systems, and the symbols that were were necessary for for this client to take the work forward inside of the company. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to learn there. And you know, we get through this and and you know, without a doubt, Facebook and Theranos were these massive scandals where we had real privacy issues, where we saw this line between vision and misleading people became very gray and there were bad decisions made. But what's what's really important, what we can see from this Google uh, situation is there's so much we can learn and take from this. I mean, on one level, we can say, well, I hope that doesn't ho- happen at my company. That's step one. But step two, you can say, well, well what does the opposite look like? What does a great culture look like? And uh, hopefully we've uncovered already at the sort of midpoint of the show, lots and lots of insights for our listeners, but we've still got, Chad, we've still got two more big blocks of content to come. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're going to segue away from culture and I think we're going to get a little bit more into ego and hubris. Flying a bit too close to the sun here, yeah. Boy, 
Chad, you want to lead us off? Yeah, well, coming back into my backyard, you, you said it well. One of the biggest marketing stunts pulled by the world's second largest company, largest, I don't know, it changes on a weekly basis, was Amazon's HQ2 fiasco. And after all of the hoopla and pitches, they ended up backing out. So we have a clip here that's that's a, a summary of Amazon going through all of that work and uh, hoopla for nothing. Tonight, the world's biggest company is saying no thanks to the world's financial capital. Amazon had announced it would bring 25,000 jobs to New York's Long Island City as part of its HQ2 initiative, splitting 50,000 jobs with Northern Virginia. But almost immediately, it faced stiff opposition. Opposed to the potential impact on traffic, housing, schools, and the financial agreement Amazon struck with the city and state. Now, three months later, the company is pulling the plug on its New York plans. It shows that everyday Americans still have the power to organize and fight for their communities and they can have more say in this country than the richest man in the world. Amazon blames politicians who will not work with us to build the type of relationships that are required to go forward with the project. Among locals, both regret and relief. This is basically Amazon picking up their toys and leaving the sandbox. This was a revolution for Queen's economy. This could have been something outrageously awesome for us. Amazon's canceled order means a loss of 25,000 jobs and billions of dollars in economic impact. I think the protesters are going to realize long term that, that while they won the battle, they lost the war. Tonight, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is saying you got to be tough to make it here in New York. He says Amazon had an opportunity, but it walked away or threw that opportunity away. Meanwhile, Amazon says it is not reopening its discussions about where HQ2 is going to go. Northern Virginia and Nashville are still the winners. Well, Chad, I mean, there's a lot to say on this, um, but I want to know, I mean, how did it feel when you put on your New York Brooklynite hat how did it feel, do you think, for you? How did it think how do you think it felt for the community? We heard a lot of opposing views there. Some saying, hey, uh, good that we we avoided that. Others saying, geez, we really missed an opportunity. How how do you think new people in New York felt about losing this massive Amazon office? Conflicted is the best word that I have to describe. I, I don't know many people personally that felt a hundred percent in one camp or the other. Right. Interesting. I think, I think most people could agree that the entire like charade of in circus around, you know, pitching and oh, wasn't it a charade? Yeah. Oh my yeah gosh. I think everyone can agree that that was absolutely the wrong way to do it. You know, everyone suspected that they knew that they were going to go to Virginia and New York all along, but they just wanted to create a bidding war and to see what kind of incentives they could get. I'm pretty sure that's, that's, that's quite true. Mm. But for, for me, the lessons, for me, the lessons are really around the impact of and importance of community when it comes to the companies that we create. Yeah. Amazon, I think just went a, a bit too far yep. in in thinking, oh, we're the most important uh, company. We ha we're bringing the most jobs, and so of course you will do our our beck and call. And 
while I think maybe New York wasn't necessarily protesting against the specifics of what Amazon was doing. Uh, Certainly some people were Mm. uh, unions and and organizers uh, around wages and and working conditions, certainly. But I think it was more just of New Yorkers because I think as a, as a whole, we're probably the most proud uh, citizens in the United States when it comes to, you know, having city, city pride. And so a company like Amazon coming in and thinking that they were better than New York, uh, New York was not going to stand for that. Yeah. You know, that's so true. I mean, it's got such a vibrant sense of identity, New York. I think for me, the way we can think about, one way we can think about this is think about how Apple uh, was a little bit indulgent in creating their own new office. And I want you to contrast the two different approaches. And I think it tells us a story of how good Apple is at marketing and how bad Amazon is. Amazon basically did their Tiki Tour charade process with many people suspecting they'd already decided. And then because of the pushback, after awarding New York, they pulled out of New York. And then you heard in that, they've said, okay, we don't want to talk about this anymore, which is a classic sign of, wow, you were talking about this a lot for a whole year, right? (laughs) And it's really funny. Whereas if you think about Apple, they created this amazing place. They did it with more discretion and judgment. And it became just yet another thing Apple did where everyone's like, oh, wow, right? Mm-hmm. What a stark contrast to massive new headquarter projects from two titans of Silicon Valley, but completely different outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the community in which we're starting companies is probably often overlooked. And yeah. And so, I, the, the, again, the lesson for me here is you know, this is why by default people move to the coasts, uh, because they see a lot of the opportunities there, but there are many other cities that are thriving because of how welcoming they are to new businesses and technology in, in, in so many different industries. Yeah. I mean, they could have done this a little quieter, a little bit more meaningful, a lot quicker because the process took forever. And they could have just taken a a leaf out of the Apple playbook. But talking about companies that, you know, crossed the line, flew too close to the sun, one of our favorite innovators who has amazing mental models, enormous courage, but has shown some real judgment problems is Mr. Elon Musk. And, um, We've we've picked a clip here that is done a little while ago, but we've chosen it because of some of the the, the items that it that it talks about. Um, and this is in reference to Elon Musk and his tweeting. And and for context here, Elon has been uh, I, I think challenging Donald Trump for uh, Twitter's favorite celebrity, mm-hmm. and and I think Elon and Tesla have become. Uh, actually really dependent upon Elon saying things to pump up the stock price. There's serious questions about the viability of Tesla. Can they produce enough cars to make money? And um, we'll put that topic aside, but contextually here, Elon has been an absolute hero for the media. They've loved him. They've adored him. I think a lot of people buying a Tesla are actually buying Elon Musk. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. 
where you get in a bit of a twist and if you're not careful, if you don't stay humble, you can sometimes get a little bit big for your boots. And Elon has made a point of attacking the SEC and the SEC are responsible for governing listed publicly listed companies and the rules by which they can disclose things about their business. And there are certain expectations and rules as to how a CEO and spokespeople other companies should behave. And Elon has uh, got in a lot of trouble. And uh, the the allegations and fines that are discussed in this clip, Elon actually did get fined. Actually, Elon did get in a lot of trouble. But what's really important here is we're going to hear from a former SEC commissioner giving some really good analysis on Elon Musk and him getting in trouble for saying just a little too much. You look at this case and the filing uh, that the SEC just made. If you're the judge, you do what to Elon Musk? Well, I, I have to say, I think the SEC has acted very responsibly. We've got a CEO who, I guess for want of a better word, is irrepressible. Um, he needs to have a certain amount of repression of his instinctive uh, drive to go to Twitter. So I think that um, uh, holding him in contempt, fining him, and uh, leaving him with strict instructions that if this continues, the uh, punishment will be worse, um, would be in order. At least that's what I would do under the circumstances. He is, he is uh, flaunting the um, judicial decree that he agreed to back in uh, September. What, ki what kind of fine are we talking about here? Um, I don't uh, know, but I'm assuming, uh, uh, you know, fines uh, that would be in the tens of millions of dollars um, uh, to make at least an impact. Uh, he's got plenty of money. The point is to show him that if he continues issuing tweets without getting them pre-cleared, he is headed for very serious problems. Right. Harvey, though, should the fine be for Elon Musk, and I don't want to dissuade you of that, but also for the company itself, and frankly, even uh, for the shareholders to pay, given that it appears that the board and uh, management did not put in any meaningful place uh, a system, even though I know the SEC says that they tried to put something in place, but one that's working uh, to to pre-clear these 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 uh, these emails or, or these uh, social media messages. I think there's um, a, a fundamental problem here. Musk is a creative genius. I don't think anybody would deny that. Therefore, he has real value to the company. On the other hand, he does not function the way um, a normal CEO should function. There has to be something that represses this instinctive drive to put things out on Twitter and uh, just give vent to his every thought and emotion that comes into his head. So in that sense, I'm not certain how much the company itself can do. Hmm. Other than staying off of uh, Twitter when you're coming out of confidential financial <laughs> meetings with your CFO, I don't, I don't know what uh, yeah. to take from yeah. this. Yeah, and, and, and the reason that we chose that clip is Look, here's the thing. 
Elon Musk chose to take Tesla public. Elon Musk chose to raise money from the market. And whether you agree or disagree with his findings and his behavior, you when you take money from the public markets, you agree to the rules of the public markets. And I'm sorry, but he's not better than the public markets. I think he got way too arrogant thinking he could actually break the rules. And if he didn't want to play by the rules, that's cool. Don't go public. Don't go raise a couple of billion from investors. And to me, this is the real point here. We know he loves his Twitter, just like Donald. We know uh, that he's got exciting ideas to share. That's all good and well. But he also chose to go public. And you can't have your cake and eat it. Like, which one do you want? You want Twitter or you want to raise money from the markets? And more specifically here, to go back to the fine line between vision and misleading people, let's be clear, he did a really big tweet where he said, we have raised money to go private, done. And when you're a public company and you make that sort of statement in Twitter, that is a huge breach of the rules. And let's not forget, Chad, they actually hadn't raised the money. And they haven't gone private. Right. Yeah. It's This is interesting to me because in a lot of ways, it, it heralded this wave of IPOs that we're going through right now at the moment. We're kind of in between lots of different IPOs. And I'll let you close the book on on the Elon story. But uh, to me, it's pretty clear and simple. You know, if you're a named uh, elected officer of a public company, there's just some rules that you have to follow. And if you don't want to follow them, then maybe you should find someone else to, to, to fill that role. Right. Which, which, which some, some founders have done after they've yes. um, and, and run their course uh, in the founder CEO role. You know, I, I'm hearing a lot of calls for Mark Zuckerberg just to step down, but uh, I think he has too many controlling shares of the company to, 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 to acquiesce to that. Yeah. Well, a funny thing on Zuckerberg, I think he's doing a, a, a sort of a better job than Cheryl. I mean, if if I look at the last uh, crisis at Facebook, I think a lot of this lands on 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 Cheryl, mm. chief operating officer. Mm. Um, let me remind you. And secondly, talking about hubris, she went right out there with Lean In, and we did a show on it, and we love that thinking. But when you go out on such a high moral ground, you have to remember you're now. You're now you're now held to those expectations, mm-hmm. and I think that has been, uh, you know, a very stark wake up call for her uh, to kind of round out the show and and this talk of IPOs and the Securities Commission and all of this stuff. The reality is, this is still one of the most preferred, legitimate ways for founders and investors to cash in on. Um, their entrepreneurship. I mean, of recent times, we, we've seen uh, Pinterest, uh, Zoom, and a number of other companies have uh, really, really big IPOs. And, and at the heart of this is we, we're moving into a moment where IPOs are back in fashion. Uh, in the previous 
decade, we've seen real swings, ups and downs on the IPO market. And up until recently, uh, private equity uh, and venture capital were more easily obtained by companies. But now the markets are really, really warm in receiving tech IPOs. So we're seeing a lot of block, uh, blockbuster IPOs and there's a lot to come. Here's what we know for sure. Coming very soon, it will be WeWork and Uber and Slack. Those are going to be huge. Uber promises uh, to be one of, if not the biggest IPO ever in history. But we've also got a couple of others. Don't forget, there's still Airbnb mm-hmm. sitting there waiting out their time. I wouldn't be surprised if before the end of the year, they they actually go for it as well. Now, the, the thing here uh, is it really gets us to our last lesson. At some point, and this is particularly relevant uh, to funded companies or tech companies who are in those early seed or ABC rounds of funding, at some point, you have to make money. And if you're not making money now, the key thing here, and this might sound so self-evident if you're an entrepreneur, what do you mean? (laughs) You have to have the promise of making money in the future. And the last few clips we want to share with everybody is a, is a bit of an analysis. And this has got, there's a lot of learnings in this. So, so I really recommend you tune in. You've got to make money and there are ways that you can look at stocks or businesses in general to understand if and how and when they're going to make money. And we have a great example, don't we, Chad? I mean, if there was one stock of recent times that really brings this into question, it's Lyft, isn't it? Yeah. Not only because it's a precursor to Uber, but it um, is one of the first big IPOs around the sharing economy, Mm. which again is also kind of a precursor to Airbnb as well. So we've got, yeah, we've got some clips here to talk not only just about Lyft, but Lyft and in relationship to some of these other companies that have and soon will be on public offer. You know, we've been scoring 14 aspects of tech companies as they go public for about six years. We scored about 150 deals, and the above average scores do about twice as well as everyone else. So the Lyft score was interesting. We compared Lyft to Snap at that time because they were high-profile deals that were both set up with very low scores to do poorly. And that played out. And now we have Pinterest coming, and we can compare Pinterest to Snap because they're basically the identical business although they run their businesses a little bit differently. And so... Do you um, think they're identical businesses? Yeah, they sell ad campaigns to big brand advertisers. Okay, that's a very simple simple way to think about it. I'm sure right. that uh, Evan Spiegel will think that his business is different than uh, Ben will think the, at but Pinterest. Th- these but. guys will argue all day long. Well, I'll tell you what is different is their score. So Snap scored a 5.91 and Pinterest does a 6.63 versus an average of 6.3. Right, so Pinterest is well above average in the scoring system, and we think this deal will reflect that, and it seems to be shaping Explain up to do that. Explain what goes into that scoring system so that, so, so that viewers and those who are thinking about whether to buy Pinterest understand sure. the dynamics here. Sure. Well, there are 14 different aspects of it. So there's the business, there's the transparency, there's the board, there's the investors, right? there's the syndicate. So those 14 aspects are all pretty important, but there are three things that I think tell the story about the comparison of Pinterest versus Snap. One of them is transparency, right? Pinterest was just a little bit more forthcoming about how the mass trap actually works. Pinterest, obviously, much more profitable than Snap was. Right. Snap losing a fortune when they went public, and those losses have continued. Pinterest closing in on break even, right? 
And then the killer one is valuation, right? Pinterest obviously priced sensibly in light of the Lyft disaster and so forth. Snap not priced sensibly. And so we think Pinterest, again, across all of these things, nets to a 6.63, which is, again, just radically better than a 5.91. Were you surprised at what's happened to Lyft now? I mean, given no. where Lyft is, but, I mean, did, you, did your score reflect how far Lyft has fallen? I mean, it was a low score, 5.47 Lyft score versus a 5.91 for Snap, right? So we were expecting, you know, not good things out of Lyft. And, you know, I think, look, the more high profile it is, the more people are looking at it and saying, like, I don't know, this doesn't really make sense to me, right? Sometimes we'll see companies trade against their scores. And usually what that means is it's sort of out of the way of attention and things like that. When people focus, they can see the things that I don't want you to front run this, but dare I ask where Uber is lying right around now? Well, I mean, Uber is interesting, right? Because, like, the price is maybe a little bit trouble. They were a little bit more forthcoming about their metrics. The loss profile is much more attractive in the sense that they're only losing $3 billion on $11 billion of revenue, right, versus Lyft losing a $1 billion on $2 billion of revenue. But the valuation, I think, will be the thing that sort of moves it in one direction or another. Yeah, so just a basic uh, math lesson. Uber, sorry, Lyft, were generating $2 billion in income, but at the same time, they had $3 billion in costs and they went IPO. Like that means you are betting on the future in a big, big way, doesn't it, Chad? Yeah. And I think that's what I was taking away. And the financial mumbo jumbo aside <laughs> was the things that mattered was transparency into the business model. D- do I, or as a proxy, like d- does the public understand how this company makes money? Yes or no? Yeah. Snap. People didn't really get, but Pinterest, yeah, they, you understand the mousetrap, as he said, a bit better. Mm. And then the, the revenues or, or, or losses. So many of these startups aren't making money when they're going public, but you want to be sure that that graph trend line uh, is moving up into the right. So many companies are focused on revenues. They often forget about profitability. Certainly when you're able to raise money, against those revenues. Uh, VCs are willing to look further into the future, maybe than the public markets in terms of getting those returns. Right. Uh, yeah. To me, I still think it's kind of insane that these companies are going public and that people are buying these stocks in the IPOs. But Absolutely. that just tells you a bit about my own conservative financial leanings. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just keep going deeper in this. There's a lot more to learn. We've got uh, another uh, lift uh, clip, and this time we're going to get deeper into the quagmire that was Lyft. The linchpin here in terms of a company like Lyft becoming profitable is going to be this bet on autonomous driving. We've had investors on on our air who have actually suggested maybe we never actually get fully autonomous driving and driverless cars. I mean, what happens then? Well, I think that they go through what every company goes through, which is they're going to have to start looking at ways to cut costs. I mean, I look at the amount of money that Lyft spends on marketing, and it is phenomenal. I mean, they are, yeah. and, it, and it's not just the traditional marketing, but it's, you know, sponsoring concerts and getting people rides to rap events. I mean, they are doing all kinds of creative things because, you know, they're in that phase where they're trying to acquire customers. So I think that, you know, as a public company, they're going to have to start looking really hard at costs if this bet on autonomous doesn't go there way. We just saw this week there was this uh, experiment, I think it was in China, where people were putting markers on the road, basically, that were designed to redirect 
uh, driverless cars, <laughs> autonomous cars. It was a good reminder that the path from here to safe, ubiquitous, autonomous driving out in the places where people want to travel, not just in controlled campus environments, is actually pretty pretty long. And, and there are these issues. If you can put stickers on a road or paint symbols on a road and cause cars to veer into oncoming traffic, that's a problem. Yeah, for me, that just doubles down on the first clip in saying, well, you're not making money now, but what you could see is people really questioning the promise of the profits of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I felt that what they quite clearly highlighted was just a bit of due diligence. If you think about, well, you're betting on driverless cars. Ooh, well, a lot of infrastructure needs to happen for that. That's a big bet. The earlier clip, what I loved about that is that was like forensic analysis of factors that speak to the health and the profitability of a company. These things we can all do. I think that's the big lesson here. Mm. We can all do these things. It's a question of are we going to have the rigor to go through doing that when we invest in stocks or when we look at our own company. And I think this is a big thing we can take so far out of the list story, don't you, Chad? Yeah, I think I think that these IPOs are a bit of a gut check or, or a reality check or piercing, popping the uh, reality distortion field that often surrounds <laughs> most of these companies. And you know, taking this all the way back to Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, they, sh- she and, and Sunny, her business partner and, and boyfriend, they hid behind the secrecy and privacy that you get when you're a private company. Right. And so in a way, maybe some good from these IPOs is that it is, you know, shining a light on these companies in a way that maybe they hadn't been shined on before because they're getting VCs because their friends got the same VCs to invest in their friend's company. And so it kind of breaks them out of the, you know, the old boys club. That's what's interesting to me is kind of this transparency and shining a light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. The the um, the thing is that what we saw occur in the public markets for Lyft is no different to what we can do in our own companies, which is ask those tough questions. Mm. I mean, at, at, at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, is this venture that I am doing, is it going to make money, right? What is the real legitimate path to profitability? Because Profitability is a proxy for value Mm -hmm. because if you can do a thing and people are prepared to pay for it and you can cover your costs and make a bit more on the top, that suggests you're creating value. And what we're seeing here, both with Facebook, both with um, some of those other companies that depend on turning people into their products is it is a real cautionary tale because underlying both Uber and Lyft is great convenience for us as riders, but we've all heard about the concerns of the conditions and the ethics by which they take people out of employment into partial kind of, if you will, freelance status where they don't get healthcare, where they Mm -hmm. don't get a number of other benefits. So it really does start to not only uh, uh, stimulate a question of are we going to make money, but can we do it in the right way? Can we do good business by doing good, if you will? Yeah, 
as I'm thinking about it and hearing some of these numbers, it's really interesting to me that some of these startups that are IPOing in our collective minds have been put kind of in the same echelon as companies like Apple. But Apple is throwing off tens of billions of dollars <laughs> in profits, right. hundreds of billions in revenues. And again, to, to me, there's like no comparison. Uh, the, the, the interesting dark horse in all of this is Amazon, mm-hmm. who in the very first year that Jeff founded the company, he said, I am not optimizing for profits here. I am I am eating the world in the revenues that I'm generating, and I'm just going to grow it to be such a giant company, and then he'll he'll turn the screws for yeah for profitability. But that was a decision that he made at the very outset in founding of of the company. I think it is going to be a big payoff for him. I, that story still needs to play out, right? But it's it's really interesting for me to to look at all of these companies in this purely financial way. It's just a different lens, a different perspective in seeing the value that they're creating for for their customers. And and what I really enjoy is to see the intersection of, you know, the way you think about culture and the way you think about money and ethics. They end up all intersecting. And perhaps Mm -hmm. this is the biggest lesson uh, from our cautionary tale here. If you want to prosper as an entrepreneur, you are now forced to consider the fine line between vision and misleading people. You're forced to consider what's the culture that that I want to create to nurture the people in my organization. How you are forced as a modern uh, business leader, an innovator, as a founder, privacy and ethics is a conversation you have to have. It's got to be part of how you build the company. And if you find success, I think humility, we are learning that humility is such an important thing to have in your mind about how you and the company behave. I think, you know, we set ourselves the challenge at the beginning of this show, Chad. Let's see what we can learn. I think there it is, you know, there is a deep intersection between entrepreneurship, privacy, ethics, vision, culture, humility. I think these all come together to be the modern entrepreneur's playbook. Yeah. So, so maybe, um, maybe we'll call this episode lessons learned, mm. uh, not quite as an ominous, uh, <laughs> title as, um, what, what did I, what did I say earlier? Cautionary tales. <laughs> yeah. Cautionary tale. We'll call it lessons learned. <laughs> I can agree to that, Chad. I can agree to that. That sounds, that sounds good, but, um, what a nice segue and what a nice pause after that great architect series. How wonderful has it been just to, to learn a very different set of lessons and and to really actually I feel like we really kind of grabbed a little bit of like the modern twist on entrepreneurship like I think right now mm. it's not just about a startup and running Amazon web services and having something in the shared economy I think it's it's a much more holistic view mm-hmm. which I think we can all be very thankful for yeah I think the the meta lesson in all of these clips in this episode for me has just been consequences. Yeah. Think about the consequences and not just the first order, but the second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences of, of many of the actions. So mm. those cultural things that you may not think matter now, or you can, you can put them off. Yeah. That's very short sighted. And in fact, could, can kind of create rot that will be the end of your company. Yes, sir. Indeed. 
Well, Chad, I mean, this was really, really fun to do and really very satisfying to, to approach our clips from a different point of view, to approach the topic of entrepreneurship and innovation from a different uh, point of view. But we're not stopping in our unique, uh, fresh new approaches. Chad, lay it up. We got five shows coming up, which are going to knock our listeners' socks off. I just got a big package from Amazon. It contained <laughs> all of the uh, books, the entire complete library of Simon Sinek. And we're going to take one episode to go through each of his books. Um, I'm really looking forward to expanding upon our most popular episode ever here. We're just about to cross 30,000 listens of the Simon Sinek episode. Whew. And I, I just want to like wet people's appetite just a little. I think, you know, we obviously included Simon Sinek in our favorite four authors. He was up there with, you know, Clay Christensen, Peter Drucker, Eric Reese. Look, if he, if, if Simon Sinek was a stock, I would be buying his IPO. <laughs> uh, take it from me, ladies and gentlemen, this guy is one real talent and we're going to do a really in-depth look at his books and ask ourselves, what can we learn from Simon Sinek? Yeah. And I also want to remind everyone, if you're just now discovering this show, please go back uh, listen to the back episodes that pique your interest. You can find everything at moonshots.io. We've gotten, I think, six series uh, completed thus far. And before that, many episodes profiling individuals uh, across so many different categories, industries, uh, personalities. It's been really interesting. I've been revisiting I kind of pick a random episode in our back catalog to listen to <laughs> once a week. It's been uh, it's been a very fun exercise. I think one other call to action, um, you know, you can find obviously everything at moonshots.io, but I want to get everybody going into that iTunes podcast store. We're now up, we have a five-star, five out of five-star rating. We have over 12 reviews. We need a ton more. I know you're listening out there. If you guys and girls can jump into to your favorite podcasting app, jump into iTunes, whatever it is, and and just share with people what you like about the show. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, we love getting uh, so much feedback and seeing our audience grow and grow and inspire us and challenge us. So get in there and give us a review or a rating. Share it with a with a friend. We would so appreciate it, wouldn't we, Chad? Yeah, and if you have any ideas on people or companies or industries uh, that we should profile. We don't have anything firm yet for after we wrap up the Simon Sinek series. So mm. please get in touch and let us know who and or what you would like us to turn our attention to and deliver to you here on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, Chad, that brings us to the end of the show. It has been great. I want to thank you and I think our listeners for being part of it. It was so good to yeah, really learn from some of the uh, cautionary tales of recent times from our tech titans. Enjoy the rest of your evening in New York, Chad. 
Can't wait to see you in New York in just a, just a week or two. It's going to be great, huh? Yeah. And I want to take this short moment here at the end of the episode to thank you, Mike, and give a huge shout out to all of my new Qualitans brothers and sisters <laughs> across the globe, <laughs> officially coming on board uh, with you and the team. Our listeners may have already assumed that uh, we were working together in an official capacity, but I'm so thrilled to say that that we are, in fact, uh, on this journey together at, at Qualitense to, to build and, and, and test and launch some pretty radical products and services for clients. It's, it's going to be so fun. Welcome to the family, Chad. And uh, if it wasn't happening before, I think we probably now speak to each other more than we speak to our wives, but we'll have to sort <laughs> that out some other time. But yeah, it is so, so great uh, to be working together in even more wonderful ways. It's only taken you like five or six years to finally (laughs) join the team for real. So I'm glad you got across the line there, Chad. Let's go out, let's kick some ass. And uh, we hope all of you, our listeners do too. Have a wonderful time enjoying not only this show, but our Simon Sinek show to come. Thank you to everyone. And that's a wrap of the Moonshot Podcast.